We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to Cash Considerations, a Chicago Bulls podcast. We're part of the Blue Wire Network. I'm Ricky O'Donnell. As always, I'm here with Jason Pat. And Jason, the Bulls are officially through the first quarter of the season. The first 22 games of the year now done. The Bulls are 14 and 8, second place in the Eastern Conference, only one game behind the Brooklyn Nets. The Bulls currently rank number nine in both offensive and defensive efficiency, one of, I believe, four teams in the NBA during top 10. In both categories, Bulls coming off a big win last night against the Charlotte Hornets. Bulls getting the job done 133 to 119. Here to talk about that game with us and just the state of the Bulls in general, a little bit on the New York Knicks as well. He's got a new book coming out. One of my favorite NBA writers around, a diehard Chicago Sky fan and a native of what is it? Homewood, Illinois? Homewood Flossmore graduate? Ew, Flossmore. Flossmore. Flossmore, Illinois. Okay. We got Chris Herring, <laughs> the great Chris Herring joining us. So thanks so much, Chris, for uh, taking some time out of your day to uh, chat about the Bulls with us. I appreciate you guys having me. I really appreciate the intro. Uh, it's a pleasure. Uh, so, Jace, Bulls really needed this victory yesterday. I was at the game, second time uh, this year. Nice. I've been doing a game. They had lost three of the previous four coming in, and uh, there were there were some pretty frustrating losses over that stretch. Yep, absolutely. And this one almost turned into another frustrating loss because the Bulls they kick they came out and kicked some ass for about the first two and a half quarters of this game. Uh, really fun game, a lot of scoring, a lot of n- not much defense. I know the Hornets aren't really much of a defensive team, but we had the ball, we had the ball matchup going there, battle of the balls. That was a lot of fun. Um, the Bulls went up, what, 23 points? We finally got some Nikola Vucevic, the breakout game that we've been waiting for all season. Uh, and then the Bulls almost blew it. That zone defense, which we saw against Miami, that was a problem. Kind of befuddled them again early in the fourth quarter. That 23-point lead goes down to four. Uh, but then Vooch comes back in. Zach comes back in. Lonzo made some big plays. And they were able to end up winning by 14. They put up season-high 133. 
Uh, Vooch season high 30, he went six of six from three, just really great to see him get going again. Uh, and like you said, they really needed this win. And I said this before the game that, uh, after losing three or four, you lose that tough game to Miami, you lose to the Rockets, which I feel like we should just like not talk about that game at all. Like you blew the four, the fifth, the, whatever the 15 game losing streak that they had, even though now the Rockets have won three in a row, uh, they're, they're don't let them get hot. You lose that game. Uh, you lose the Heat game. What was the other game? They lost the Pacers game, which was a schedule loss. So a few schedule losses in there mixed in with the awful Rockets game. You had the, the Magic game, but they won. But this is a game with a schedule coming up, with the Knicks coming up. You're going to play Brooklyn. You got the Nuggets. You get the Heat again next week in the Cavs. This is a game we're at home against a, a decent Hornets team that was pretty close in the standings, though. You got to win this game. Defend your home court, and they come out and do it. To see Vooch come out and play really big was huge. Um, and there was a really good team effort. Vooch, DeMar had a nice game. Zach had 25 and he was sick. Came into the game. It was a game time decision with an illness, but he played through it, had a pretty nice game. Caruso big off the bench again. So just a really nice team effort that they really needed. Uh, Chris, did you watch any of this game? I know a lot of people are talking about it with the battle of the balls. Uh, it was a lot of fun. I guess just in general thoughts on the bulls game last night, the, the Vucevic thing, I think was the big story there. What do you make of Vucevic finally breaking out? Uh, the game in general, anything like that. I like I said, I'm not really sure if you actually saw this game, but just general thoughts on Vooch and the Bulls getting this big one over the Hornets. I will readily admit I've caught most of their games this year. I did not get to see a single minute of this one. My editors have been uh, beating <laughs> down my door. There's been a team from Phoenix that's won a whole bunch of games in a row and has yeah. a massive game against the Warriors tonight. Um, so between that and wanting them, them wanting to have a story from me on that before this game tonight against the Warriors. And I teach classes on Tuesdays and Thursdays and having a lesson plan for that um, <laughs> and getting back into town from Thanksgiving. I did not get a chance to watch the game. Um, so I, I, but I did get a chance to just kind of look at yeah. what happened in it and them, uh, them holding on to win it at the end. Uh, look, the, the, the Vucevic game, I think is kind of the thing that, that you're mentioning a lot that I think, if you're a Bulls fan, if you're the Bulls themselves, I think you were just kind of waiting on the idea of this man to kind of, you know, I guess he kind of had a, a nuclear winter as far as just, to, or not a nuclear winter, I guess just like a really frigid winter already uh, in terms of just his shooting and just him not, even back to preseason, just could not hit anything. And so the fact that the Bulls were like kind of the surprise for a lot of people of the season so far without him really contributing anything near what he, you would hope he could um, from a scoring standpoint, you know, he'd still look the part as far as just passing the ball and making the right reads, uh, getting the right shots and getting the shots you want him to have. And he just couldn't make them. Uh, this is kind of what you've probably been waiting on. And to some extent, I think getting everybody on the same page and hot at the same time, if you're the bulls, that's kind of what you're hoping for now is the idea that, you saw what they were capable of just being on the same page defensively. And then right as you were really starting to hum, he gets COVID, um, you know, and I want to say he had like one or two games right before that too. He did. And then, and then got sick. And so just, you know, you, you just wanted to be able to get all these guys on the same page because that's what makes this team lethal. I think is if they can be a top 10 team on both sides of the ball without him even really playing the way you expect them to, uh, what are the possibilities when he when he gets it going to and and when he's a dangerous sort of all star level threat that, you know, he can be. And so that was the encouraging thing. I imagine, you know, he was not going to stay cold forever. 
Um, but, you know, it's in a way, like you said, a, a win that they needed to have, but also one that as they spend more time at the top of the standings in the East, the sort of win that you expect that they'll have. Um, you know, I think they were prone to have that Indiana loss, like you said. Uh, every now and then you're going to lose a game uh, like the Rockets when you would hope there aren't too many of them. Um, but, you know, to some extent you start expecting to beat teams like Charlotte. And even when you are near the top of the standings, um, just knowing that you have a, a more solid veteran team than they do, that you'll that you'll come out with a win like that. So um, not surprised at all. But, um, you know, if anything, again, I, I picked them obviously to be very good relative to most people. But if you had told me that Vucevic had started the year the way he had, I don't know that I would have picked them to be nearly as, as good as they have been. So you, you hope that this is just kind of a sign of things to come. Yeah, what stood out what stood out to me about the game is that it felt like the first time all year Zach Demar and Vooch were all cooking at the same time. They all had 25 points or more. Uh this the center matchup in particular with Vooch going off in the Hornets started Nick Richards, who I used was a disappointing big man in Kentucky a few years ago. Then they only played him seven minutes. The rest of the game, they basically played PJ Washington at center or didn't play a center. So first thing that jumped out, the Hornets are already really good. They're 13 and 10. I think LaMelo is going to be an absolute star. Miles Bridges is doing the Jimmy Butler Bowles thing where he didn't agree to the extension and he breaks out. He's probably going to get a max contract now. Hornets, you need a center. Like we need a lob threat for LaMelo the same way that we were able to get Clint Capella for Harden and for Trey Young. Get a center Hornets and that team's going to be difficult. In terms of the Bulls, I thought that this was the first time all year, like I said, that the three key pieces were cooking. So I think coming into this year, we were all thinking like the path for the Bulls to be, you know, to hit their potential, to be one of the better teams in the East, whatever we thought was, you know, the the ceiling for the Bulls before this year started was going to be as an offensive powerhouse. Now this year, they are top 10 in offense, they're ninth. And I feel like they really haven't, come close to playing as well as they can possibly play. A lot of that is Vooch. And my sort of like quick analysis on it is that Vooch is so involved in so many of the actions in the half court that like, he's just touching the ball a lot. Uh, You know, they're doing a lot of dribble handoffs with him, swinging the ball side to side with him. And even when he's not getting like his diet of post touches as he was in Orlando and they are having him space the floor a little bit more, it's been an adjustment for Vooch. And I think he has had to sacrifice a lot on this team, especially compared to his role last year, where when he came to the Bulls in the midseason trade, like weren't the Bulls the most post heavy team in the league after that trade? Like they were pounding him in the post <laughs> right. towards right. the end of the year. Obviously, the team was terrible. They change over the whole roster. But I'm curious, Chris, is like, how good do you think this team can be offensively? Uh, you know, like, what do you see in terms of cohesion from those three stars? I interviewed Alex Caruso last week and I asked him how the chemistry is going. And like, you know, is that something that outsiders like Jason and I uh, maybe like put too much stock into? Like, how how do how does the team sort of handle creating chemistry? And Caruso just basically said it's going to be a work in progress, but he already felt pretty good about it. Right. I think the best thing to get the chemistry going is going to be Vooch to stop missing the six foot jump hooks that he's been missing. Yes. 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 Still top 10 in offense. So, you know, like, what do you see is like an upside for the Bulls as an offensive team. Now that we know DeRozan's been awesome. Zach is still Zach. And, uh, you know, Vooch can't be any worse, which is probably encouraging. 
No, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, to me, I, I'm not as worried about the jump shooting stuff. Uh, you know, it's one of those things where as you, you mentioned as an outsider, I'm just as much of an outsider with regards to the way these guys feel the, the basketball and the changes with the basketball. But you feel like at some point, Vooch is, is going to hit those, you know, pick and pops where they're leaving him wide open. Uh, you know, you, you've got to kind of let the foot off the pedal defensively somewhere to try to stop some of these guys from getting to the basket, to not have to foul DeRozan out of desperation. Maybe that's the one spot you can kind of, you know, kind of close your eyes and hope that maybe a shot doesn't go in. But the ones that when you kept looking at them that you're like, man, this has to fall for him at some point are those little jump hooks that he gets. And I feel like he back rims it every single time and it just rims out uh, and kind of bricks, you know, the, the five, six foot shot. Um, and at some point, I mean, that's what he's made his whole career off of to some extent. Um, you know, and other than when he, when he's not having his Valanciunas games where he's hitting seven threes in a row, you know, the, the ones that are from 10 feet and in, you kind of feel like that's his bread and butter. And so at some point, you know, to be the full threat that he can be when he's rolling with somebody with one of the guards or one of the wing players, that that shot falls more. And once that does, the whole offense opens up because, Really, everybody else has been doing their thing. It's just been him. So the fact that, again, that you're a top 10 offense, which, by the way, you know, offensively, they started slower uh, than they had been uh, defensively, where they'd basically been a top five-ish team all year defensively. Offensively, they started 13, 14, whatever it had been. So now that all of a sudden with, you know, some even with some bad performances, like we've talked about, you know, the last week or so, the fact that they're still a top 10 offense at this point in the season, a quarter of the way through with Vucevic not shooting particularly well without him being part of the offense at all or part of the team at all for 10 days, 12 days, however long that had been. I mean, you, you feel pretty good about the fact that they can finish about where I think we might have pegged them was to be, you know, if all things go right, a top five offense. And it looks like maybe there's the potential for them to finish that way even if the defense fades a little bit, which, you know, they've kind of outkicks their coverage, I think, defensively. Um, I think you feel good about the fact that they can and maybe should be a top 10 defense. But, you know, I don't think that they'll be top five defensively. And I think that that was probably um, too high of an expectation. I don't know anyone that had an expectation that high to begin with anyway. Stacey King did. He said it on the preseason broadcast, top five defense. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And I remember thinking, do you mean top five offense, Stacey? Now, I was really optimistic, too, where I'm, I I wrote a couple pieces about them during the offseason. I remember I wrote one in particular, um, essentially saying, like, is this a, a home court advantage team that we're just kind of all overlooking? And I essentially said, yeah, I think it might be. And in that piece, I said top 10 defense, that there's no reason they can't be a top 10 defense. And in doing that, I honestly had forgotten about part of what made them a top 10. I completely forgot about Daniel Tice when I was writing the story and the fact that they didn't have them and the fact that they a lot of their success had come from playing two bigs in that stretch where Zach was hurt. Um, but, you know, that said, even upon thinking about them, I'm like, well, top 10 is probably a little bit lofty and optimistic to think that they'll finish that high. Um, but, you know, if they can finish somewhere around that or be merely average defensively, they're closer to 15, that's fine because I think we all can look at this team and say they should definitively be a top 10 offense. And then if they're doing that, normally speaking, if you're average on one side and really good on the other side, you're going to at least be a playoff team 
which I think most people could live with that. You don't have to be a home court advantage team necessarily. But then again, if you're one of a handful of teams that is top 10 on both sides, uh, if you're not sniffing home court advantage, there's something really wrong. Uh, or you're losing a lot of close games or something like that. Yeah. So, I mean, they, they've started the way you would hope that they would based on what their numbers show. I don't think it's a fluke. I mean, I think within the first two weeks, there were a lot of things here that looked like this. nothing about this feels fluky. There's very much an identity that they have. It's like, look, we're not going to be maybe the greatest rim protection team. We're not going to have a bunch of guys that are just, you know, ball ball hawks or anything like that. We're, we're going to maybe have two, maybe three of them. Uh, I think Javante Green's been very good for them uh, on that end of the floor. But, you know, we're, we're just going to make it difficult from, you know, from the wings that we have hounding you. And the rest of it, we'll just try to make work. And we're going to play small and we're going to play fast. And if you make a mistake, we're going to make you pay for it every single time, getting up and down the floor and transition. And, you know, that's kind of what they looked like in the preseason, quite frankly, with the effort and everything else and with everybody's hands and limbs in every lane. And it, you know, it, it's to some extent, I kind of respect it. It just kind of is what they are. They're not perfect on that end of the floor. But um, when you can score it the way they are, you're taking the ball out of the basket a whole lot. You're not getting a whole lot of opportunities to run and transition against them. So it worked. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Uh, I wanted to shift this to another guy the Bulls need to get going offensively, and that's Kobe White. So Kobe suffered the shoulder injury that kept him out of the entire offseason training program, kept him out of training camp. Uh, he returned earlier this month. Uh, he came back November 15th against the Lakers, and it's been a tough go for Kobe. Kobe, in the games he's played thus far, is shooting 34.9% from the field, 22% from three-point range, and he's only taken seven free throws, but he's even shooting 57% on free throws. So uh, what I think is really interesting about the last week of Bulls basketball is that Billy Donovan has decided uh, that Kobe doesn't really need to earn his minutes this season. Uh, he's kind of just given him Io DeSumo's spot in the rotation. Uh, Io, the last two games, has played under 10 minutes, and Against Charlotte, Kobe in there, 22 minutes. Against the Heat, Kobe in there, 20 minutes. So I want to talk about Kobe a little bit because he's always been like a piece we were discussing as like, oh, when they get him back, like, you know, is he going to take someone's spot? Uh, how does he fit this team? And I think it's pretty interesting that Donovan is just throwing him into the fire, even as he struggled shooting the ball 
um, horrendously to this point, especially by his standards. Defensively, he's never been particularly good. And I'm just going to say he still looks lost often defensively since he's come back. But yet Donovan still trusts him, right? So I think Donovan has his finger on the pulse of the team. He knows what the team needs. We've also seen Donovan adjust his game plans throughout the course of the short season already. Just as a quick example, Derek Jones wasn't in the rotation to start the season. Then Derek Jones gets in as like a power forward or a small forward. Then eventually Derek Jones is playing the backup five and taking Tony Bradley's minutes. So I think Donovan, like just because Kobe is playing now doesn't necessarily mean that if Kobe's still shooting 35% from the field in 20% from three, like he's just not going to keep playing. I got to say, watching that game against the Hornets, I'm like, dude, this there's way too much Kobe going on right now. Like, and credit to Kobe and credit to the team because Kobe did hit a big three late in that game. And we should say Kobe played great against Orlando. He did. Uh, you know, they, they sort of needed his shot making in that game. He also had a great game against the Knicks where he hit a bunch of threes in the fourth quarter. But big part of the reason they won that Knicks game. Yeah. Yeah. In some Kobe's performance has been slow to start his return from injury. I think like if it would, if he wouldn't have had a slow start, that would have been bizarre because it was a really bad injury. He hasn't played basketball since what, like May or something. So uh, I just want to talk about Kobe. I know you're a Michigan man, Chris, but uh, I was at Illinois. He was really giving the bulls a lot of defensive energy. I think he made an interesting transition from like, a college superstar to like an NBA role player energy wing where like now he wasn't handling the ball much at all. And he was basically just like a buzzsaw on both ends of the court. I really appreciated what IO gave the team. I still think that the bulls do need someone with Kobe's skill set, or like yep. they need an optimized version of Kobe eventually. Cause they need a fourth score. Especially with the zone defenses that like Kobe's been missing too many open threes against these zones. It happened against Miami. Uh, it happened against the Hornets until you hit that last one. Like if teams are going to keep throwing these zones out there against like these lineups with like DeMar and bench, like they need Kobe to hit open corner threes and he's been getting looks and he just like has not hit them. Yeah. So just curious what you think about, uh, you know, the I overs Kobe rotation thing and, you know, just like Kobe in general, like it's gotta be tough for him coming back from the injury and the entire team changed while he was hurt. Right. And they got off to a hot start without him. So I totally have, uh, sort of a wait and see approach with that. And I think Donovan will too, to a certain extent, but Hey, they're trusting Kobe and, you know, Donovan must think that they do need him, uh, you know, the best version of himself as the season continues. Yeah. It's interesting because I feel like he was one of the bigger question marks. You know, my best friends are diehard, diehard Bulls fans and, you know, and they'll text me about him a lot. And I feel like he's the one that people kind of do the biggest, 180 on uh where because he can have those stretches you know the end of his rookie season where he just catches fire you know but and the points leading up to that you're kind of like what is this and you know but also the idea of him going from bench to starter to out of the rotation because of injury to then back in it and then stealing the minutes of kind of a lot of people's new favorite guy uh you want to give him maybe a little bit more time but the reality is, you know, if, if it's been a little bit of a surprise that he's playing so much, given how poorly he's played so far, it's a little early to say this, but kind of in the back of my mind, if the Bulls go as far as I think they want to, at a certain point with how much they've turned over the roster, part of me wonders if all the time he's getting is kind of like 
win, lose, or draw, we got to give him playing time at least to try to rehab him a little bit so that we can, you know, if you want, even if you want to move on from him at some point, you need him to look better than he has. Um, because, you know, I like Kobe. I like some of the stuff in his skill set. I, I do think that he's a little bit risky because of what he doesn't have on defense, what he doesn't have as far as size. Um, but when you think about like a playoff rotation, you normally want to have at least that one microwave bench guy, certainly. Yeah. But part of me wonders if you could get a more consistent, polished veteran version of him. And if a team would kind of take a flyer on a guy that is as young as he is, that maybe has a little bit more room for upside that maybe needs an extra ball handler and maybe has a little bit more time. My thought process is just that the team, I don't think they they have to win the whole thing right now necessarily, but I feel like they would like to start moving more in that direction. And also that quite frankly, the stuff that you mentioned about IO, they might be better served by guys that are more energy guys that also can shoot a little bit better than some of the guys they have on that bench. And I think that's the thing is like, you need some of Kobe scoring, but you would love for somebody to have his scoring with a little bit more defensive IQ. Um, and that's why, you know, like you said, IO has been fascinating from that standpoint, because I think a lot of rookies could really make their way um, as first year guys, if they just brought that sort of chaotic energy defensively, I look at a team like Orlando, um, you know, unfortunate that Jalen Suggs, uh, with the thumb injury, but he's a guy that that starting lineup this year has been one of the best in the league uh, quietly for Orlando. Just when you look at net rating and plus minus and everything, they're really good. The the, the real flaw they have is that Jalen Suggs has shot like ass all year, um, <laughs> but he plays hard and he, you know, he's a pretty good defender and a pretty stout defender and rotations like that can work when you just got everybody flying around and playing really hard. Um, and it's really hard to do that when you have one guy that just doesn't know what he's doing defensively and is shooting poorly. And that's kind of what you're getting here, but don't have a whole lot of space for getting the fact, you know, given the fact that you've got a couple of guys that, or at least one guy, you know, I think we can be honest about tomorrow also being someone that is lost pretty frequently. Um, but you don't have much of a need to play him next to those guys really ever. If as long as those guys are in the rotation playing relatively well, you could get guys that score more consistently than him that maybe are more veteran than Kobe. So we'll see. I, I Part of me thinks the same thing, but part of me also thinks, man, even if you wanted to trade this guy at some point, you would need him to be playing better than this so you could get more back for him. But uh, Io, Io fits the team like a glove, and I think that's why it's been a little bit surprising that you know, you've seen his minutes kind of curtailed so much to accommodate Kobe's return. Yeah, as an Io guy, obviously I would love to see him play. As an Illinois guy, he I still don't trust him shooting. I think he's shooting over 40% from three on like low ball. Like, yeah, 42% from three. Io shooting to start the year. And I don't Kobe's trust it at all. Kobe's a better shooter than Io, right? <laughs> yeah. Like that is some early season small sample size yeah. thing combined with Kobe returning from injury. So I do think Kobe's going to shoot eventually. He has a track record as being a very good shooter. But it's been a tough start in his return from the injury so far. Yeah, I feel like Ios had like so even like the Hornets game, like he made like a corner. It was a long two, I think, and then he like airballed a wide open one. I feel like his just like his he's got a really slow release, and I feel like his but just like range in terms of his shooting is like he can either make it or he's gonna like airball it. So it, he definitely is super fascinating. We'll see how that turns out. Uh, you mentioned Demar. Let's talk about Demar real quick before we go into some Bulls next stuff. Uh, you wrote about Demar uh, a couple, about I think ten days ago, a week and a half ago. 
I was surprised you that he's just been awesome. And obviously you mentioned how sometimes he can be lost defensively, but they have a top 10 defense playing and DeMar DeRozan has been their best player this season. I think we've talked about it in our pod. We both think DeMar has been better than Zach this season. Uh, their numbers are pretty similar, but I think DeMar has the edge in a lot of advanced stats as well. How surprised are you that DeMar has just been awesome? I think he's, he kind of went under the radar with the Spurs. Uh, just no one really cared about mediocre Spurs teams. Uh, and he's just been awesome. I feel like he's been great offensively. Obviously, his mid-range stuff was amazing against the Hornets, hitting just some ridiculous shots. And then defensively, like he does have his moments where he's bad, but in terms of team defense, like they've been fine with him on the court. I think really actually they've been like pretty good with him on the court. So he's been everything after all the criticism of the deal and the trade and all that, like he's been everything the Bulls could have asked for. How surprised are you that he has been just almost at an MVP level? So that that's surprised me a, a little bit. I thought he was going to be really, really good for them, quite frankly. Uh, I mean, quite honestly, I was a little bit intrigued just to see how he and Levine fit together there, you know, some aspects of it where, you know, Levine has a little bit more range, a lot more range, um, but that they both like the ball in the same spots and the same kinds of plays and, and sets and stuff like that. And so you, you generally kind of feel like, okay, there might be some butting of the heads here, but they both like to play make too. And DeRozan even more than Levine, I think um, has really done well as a passer has become you know, one of the better passing kind of high volume wings in the league. So that has not surprised me. Uh, The fact that he obviously lives at the free throw line does not surprise me that he's often been the guy to close out the games. Um, I think there are some times where you look at Zach and you kind of feel like, all right, Zach, you know, like for everything DeRozan can get you and is getting you pretty efficiently and pretty easily, you don't have to force this look here. You don't have to force this look there. There are times where Zach just kind of by nature is so used to kind of taking over situations in fourth quarters that you look up and you, you see him kind of forcing the issue a little bit where he doesn't have to um, because DeRozan is there and he's kind of like the security blanket, like a really capable security blanket. So I'm not surprised by how good he's been. I think that the surprise I had for the first few weeks and now it's starting to come back down to earth a little bit is like the three-point shooting has been kind of more volume on that than I thought. Um, But also I think he's been really, really, really picking his spots where he's been, you know, if you're leaving it open from the corner, he's really going to take that shot um, because it's a shorter look for him. uh, Clearly a more confident, comfortable look for him. Um, But outside of that, most of it is kind of what we've seen from him or haven't seen a lot of people just have not. And I, you know, I've, I've tried to be polite about it, but I, I think, you know, like I watch a ton of basketball uh, for work, obviously. And even there are times where like, even I didn't really want to sit and watch the Spurs. <laughs> I do it. And every time I did it, I'm like, damn, DeRozan's a really good player. But I don't think people that don't have to do it for work are really going out of their way to watch the Spurs if you're not Spurs fans. I don't know how else. Like, think about how much bitching people did when the Spurs were winning championships and calling them boring. Like when the Spurs are now not even a playoff team and not getting national TV attention because they're not a playoff team and the best player on their roster is DeMar DeRozan, who's going out of their way to watch them? Like, I don't know that anybody is like, I think people will watch a DeRozan led Bulls team because it's the Bulls and the fan base and how big that fan base is and how intrigued that fan base becomes when the team starts winning. I just don't think they were doing that for the Spurs. So I started to put that question out there more bluntly. Like, I just think a lot of people looked at DeRozan, looked at his inability to to beat LeBron 
and Toronto, and then just kind of him falling off of the face of the earth when he went to the Spurs. I just think people weren't watching, but he was really, he tweaked his game a lot in San Antonio, like became far more complete on offense, basically everything except a three-point jumper, a consistent one. And, you know, to some extent kind of reluctant with it because he knows he's not good there. But he became a great, at least a very, very good passer with a very, very good assist to turnover ratio. A guy that is devastating at the mid-range, but it cut back on the mid-range. A guy that got to the line all the time. And really, he's doing all of that. And it's it's just paid massive dividends for the Bulls between Levine not having to do as much, between setting up Lonzo as an improved three-point shooter and a guy that does not hesitate at all now from out there. And quite frankly, when they play those lineups with Caruso, like you've got so much secondary ball handling now uh, with between he and Caruso um, in the moments where Levine and DeRozan don't have the ball. And then, oh, by the way, you've got, uh, you know, an all-star level center that when he can make those six and seven footers we were talking about, it's a really scary offense, man. And DeRozan can spearhead it. Uh, it doesn't have to be Zach. And that, that just works wonders for this team. DeRozan is so good. I really can't say enough about him. And I just have so much respect for a guy like that who sort of grew up in the league as the three-point shooting revolution sort of took foot in the league. He has never been a good three-point shooter. uh, And he's still found a way to become an awesome player despite not being able to do that. His free throw generation has single-handedly kept the Bulls afloat in that area. I think the questions about him and Zach, their fit together, he's been an awesome fit for Zach. When those two are on the court together, they're very solid. And DeRozan with the bench has been a killer unit for the Bulls all season. They often go small with uh, Derek Jones at the five, I feel like, lately in those DeRozan lineups. And he's just been a killer, uh, you know, being able to pick apart defenses from there. So I love DeRozan. I got a sort of big question. Big picture question for you on the Bulls, Chris. I did a piece today at SBNation.com ranking every team in the league by their chances to win the championship this year. And it was a tough piece. I was, you know, going back and forth on some of it. I had the Warriors one. I had the Suns two. I had the Bucks and the Nets three, four. I had the Heat five. I had the Jazz six. And controversially, I put the Los Angeles Lakers, who are not very good right now. I put them seven. Just because I feel like, well, they got LeBron, they got AD, so this is sure. a puncher's chance to win the championship. If it was power rankings, I'd have them in the 20s. But, you know, <laughs> to win the championship, yeah, they're still probably up there. Then I had the Bulls eight. So I'm curious what you think about how good this Bulls team actually is. Watching them this year, do you feel like they can win a playoff series? Do you feel like, uh, you know, it's going to be, like, pretty matchup dependent? Like, you know, if they face the... Sixers, there's no way they're going to be able to stop MB. Or if they face the Hawks, you know, they're going to be in trouble. Or do you think, like, you know, maybe the Bulls can find the magic that the Miami Heat found in the bubble two years ago, that the Phoenix Suns found in last year's playoffs, that let's say the Raptors found in 2019? There have been some teams lately, the last few years, that have gone on sort of Cinderella runs through the playoffs. So, uh, it's still early in the season. There's a lot of unknowns left, obviously, but like, how good do you think the Bulls are? No, I, I'll put it this way, Ricky. I don't, I don't think that that, like, before, I had not gotten a chance to read your piece, but I love the idea behind that piece, so I'll take a look at it as soon as we're off. And even without looking at the rest of the teams, I would have had them somewhere in, like, that 8 to 10 range. Like, where I, I think, rightfully so, I think the fans are very excited about this team. 
you have to start somewhere. Uh, I did a podcast with Zach Lowe several weeks ago where he was, you know, we, we did a kind of a segment about the teams that we were highest and lowest on relative to other people, other analysts. And the Bulls were the first team out of my mouth that I, I said, I, I kind of feel like I don't understand why people don't like them more given the changes they made and given the way they're likely going to play. And Zach responded by saying, like, I'm not completely convinced they win two playoff series during their time with this core together, let alone two in one year. And I was like, wow, like he's pretty definitive sort of statement to make. I, I certainly think that they can do that and will do that at some point. Um, whether it's all this year, I'm not sure what I'm curious about with them. First of all, I think they can. Um, I don't think it's much of a matchup dependent thing. Certainly if they finish in the top four in the East to have home court advantage, I feel much better about their chances. My question for them is that because of the way that they kind of squeeze teams defensively to make up for a deficiency that they've got on defense, can they play with that sort of tempo and really score that much off of other teams turnovers when the playoffs start, when stuff slows down, because that's so much of their bread and butter defensively that if and when that's taken away or not as readily available, then the questions about how real their offense are, which again, I think we've both, we've all said that we think their offense is good. Um, but all of a sudden a pressure that certain guys have not felt before Zach mainly, namely um, you, you're going to have that pressure riding down, bearing down on your shoulders. So I, I, I like, the idea of them being able to, to take a series, maybe two, um, in, in a single posting. I think they're good enough to do it. I just want to see how certain things, like you said, if they do play Embiid um, in a never playoff series, that guy is healthy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, it's going to be it's gonna be a challenge to try to do that because, uh, yeah, if you want to double them, even if you want to double them with, you know, bring Lonzo down and into the post and bring down Caruso and post triple them, it's still going to be a task. Uh and, you know, teams that have been there before, even without Ben Simmons, generally know how to make you pay for that a little bit better in that setting than the Bulls will. So I, I'd be very curious to see it. But I think talent wise, they're honestly, I feel like they're kind of right there. Um, there's really no reason that they shouldn't be able to. But playoff playoffs, as DeRozan will tell you from those Toronto, sometimes you have more talent than the team you're playing against. And it doesn't play out the way that, you know, the talent dictates. So I, I'm curious to see it. But I think that Honestly, eight to 10 feels fair for them. I would certainly put a couple of teams in the East, namely Milwaukee and I think Brooklyn uh, and maybe even Miami ahead of them for sure uh, before I would put the Bulls there for a title. But uh, honestly, they, they may finish with better records than all those teams and I wouldn't be stunned. Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, Bucks, Nets for sure. Heat, I mean, the Bulls, I thought, played like crap against the Heat the other night. And they only lost by three, which I guess you could say is like kind of promising. So, uh, uh, and will they play them again, I think next week. So yeah, it'll be very interesting to see on that. Uh, let's look ahead to Bulls Knicks coming up. Uh, on that that's coming up on Thursday. The Knicks are playing the Nets. Big game tonight. Uh, they're going to be starting up right after we re- finish recording this podcast. So we'll see what happens with that. Uh, and the Bulls will play the Knicks twice already. They've split two games at the United Center. Both very competitive games. The Knicks kind of controlled the first one. The Bulls made that late surge. DeRozan missed the game-winning shot at the end. Uh, some controversy over that, but whatever. That was. Close game, and then the the game they played what was that last week. I feel like they've been they played so many games against I the know. Knicks already. It's crazy. Yeah. Uh, the Bulls they came out hot. The Knicks kind of turned the tables on them, and then we got the Kobe White game. We mentioned that earlier. Big fourth quarter, the Bulls pull out a close one there. So very two very competitive games. 
very interesting matchups there because the Bulls with their small lineups, and I don't think they had Vooch in that other that last next game. We see a lot of like Alex Caruso, Lonzo Ball guarding Julius Randle, and they did a decent job on him in the first game. Uh, the second game, Randall went off, but the Bulls were still able to win. Now we won't be getting any Kemba Walker, it seems, the rotation. Kemba, Tib- Tom Thibodeau, after a lot of people, I think, were clamoring for the starting lineup change because it has not been good for the Knicks, cha- getting booting Kemba from the rotation. Um, so looking ahead at this game, I guess just first of all, the, the Kemba thing, are you shocked that that T- Tibbs is just completely booting him? Uh, I know he's like he's shooting over 40% from three, but I know, again, just like he's small. He doesn't have the juice that he used to have anymore. Yeah. So, like, I mean, it, it, do you think he'll play, like, again for the Knicks? Like, do you think he'll get back in the rotation at all? Or do you think this thing is just, like, done with Kemba? <sighs> Part of me hopes that he does just because you, I, you, you – you could tell how happy that made Kemba. I mean, he's one of the guys that you root for in the NBA. You could tell how happy he was to get home. I mean, they – the press conference. And I remember thinking as soon as it happened, I was like, Oh, this seems really ominous, like in a playful way, but not really the day that they had their introductory press conference for Kemba uh, and all their other off season guys. And um, Mark Berman from the New York post asked whether, uh, whether Kemba, he asked Kemba whether he was going to play back to backs. And you know, Kemba kind of gave this, I wouldn't say long-winded, but he gave an answer. He was like, well, that's going to be up to to Coach Tibbs. And then in the background, you hear Thibodeau sitting in the front row. He's going to play. And everybody starts laughing. And, you know, and, and Thibodeau said it with a smile, granted. But I was like, okay, as fun as this is, man, you have to, you 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 have to rest this dude because, like, he can be good in spurts, really good in spurts. We've he was good him. in the first game against the Bulls. I think he was fantastic. I mean, he hit like 95 threes against them in yeah. that one game. Um, you know, but he, man, like he just, he hasn't had it. And, you know, and it's to some extent Celtics fans are like, duh, like between that and Fournier, we told you. Um, but I mean, it, we, we, when the guy goes off and when he has those moments, not just has them, but like has them in front of a New York crowd where this guy grew up uh, for a finally competitive Knicks team. It it stings a little bit just as a basketball fan. I don't give a damn whether the, the Knicks win, the Bulls win, whatever. Um, but you want to see those those kind of fairy tale stories happen for certain guys. A guy that's never caused any problems in the league, his only kind of radiated positivity. Um, so I don't know whether he'll be like to me. You don't say that out loud and make that decision without having really thought it through. You're thinking it through. We think about the, the stuff we've said about the Bulls for years, about the way it comes off to other free agents. This was like a big homecoming for Kemba. So I imagine you don't make a decision like that lightly to just kind of take him out completely. Maybe there is a moment where they need him or maybe they have an injury somewhere where you're going to need him to step up. But to me, I mean, it was pretty definitive where Tom said pretty definitively you can't really survive having three small guards. Um, And he didn't come right out and say it, but like really three small guards, all of whom are like not known as defensive players. Um, And, and I think that's kind of the key. And so there's going to be an odd man out and Kimba for, I mean, that that's maybe the biggest takeaway is like, damn, this dude is shooting 40 some percent from three immediately after the Knicks had a complete zero offensively last year as their starting point guard and they're deciding to move on from him 
uh, a guy that started all year into the playoffs and Tom Thibodeau, a defense minded coach is deciding to move on. Like that tells you how, how much the other stuff is going wrong. Just like how sometimes the offense doesn't look right with Kimba. And even when he's scoring, he's giving up just as many points, if not more. I mean, they've had the worst defense, essentially the equivalent of the worst defense in NBA history with that starting five together. So I, I, I do think it was a pretty definitive thing. And I think they even looked at it and said, even in the, the second line, it doesn't really make sense to use Kemba. You don't really want to rob from Peter to pay Paul with moving Rose to the starting lineup because you really need his scoring in the second unit. So I understand it. I don't think it's something that they're going to really try to find a way to put Kemba back in there somehow, because I think they've already kind of determined it doesn't work, which, uh, which again, as a basketball fan, it just kind of sucks to, to watch it. But, you know, I, I, I thought that the way Thibodeau was speaking, that it looked pretty definitive that he was going to be making a change to that starting lineup. He kind of hinted at it a week or two ago when they had about seven or eight games in a row that all played out the same way, where they just got <laughs> blasted to start and then would make these furious comebacks with their second line. And, you know, that, that was not a coincidence because the same sort of thing was wrong each game. Uh, Chris, you have a book coming out. On the 90s Knicks, a team I hated very, very, very much. much growing up in the South Suburb of Chicago. It's called Blood in the Garden, the flagrant history of the 90s New York Knicks. Coming out January 22nd. Get your pre-orders in now. There's a lot of awesome basketball books coming out uh, these days. A lot of great writers have books coming out. Seth Partnow's got one coming out. Uh, the Scotty Pippen book is out. But I'm super excited for Chris's because... I remember when I was like first starting thinking about becoming a writer, I read Roland Lazenby's book, Blood on the Horns, about the end of the Bulls. And I just remember uh, thinking that was such a great book. And the title of yours kind of reminds me of it. And of course, hmm. you know, you look at the cover, you got Riley, you got Ewing, you got Starks, you got Mason, you got Oakley. So curious how this process about writing the book sort of came about. Uh, and what was it like for you? I guess like now, how are you feeling that this thing is like finally out into the world and everyone gets to, uh, you know, read the book and appreciate all your hard work? Well, to start with the second question first, so excited to have this out into the world. Um, such a long process, you know, um, at this point where it'll basically come out three years to the day that I announced it, that I was working on it. Um, so it'll be, it'll just be a huge exhale for me once it's out. Um, it's very weird to see people reviewing the book and outlets reviewing the book. I know it's just part of it, but I'm like, wait, you're, you're like critiquing what I'm doing and <laughs> it's uncomfortable and it's awful. Um, even if it's good things that they're saying, it's just very awful and very weird. Um, so maybe this is how basketball players feel when I sit and critique what they do. I don't know. Um, it's very weird being in that seat, but it's amazing that people care enough to read it, to buy it. It's really humbling from that standpoint. And I'm really grateful. Um, so your first question, it came about because someone asked me, Hey, do you want to write a book about the nineties Knicks? <laughs> right. um, uh, a literary agent approached me um, in late 2018 uh, I Lord knows I was really not in a mental place to really start thinking about anything like that. My dad had just passed really unexpectedly. And, um, you know, I was teaching a class and I was doing all these different things. I had, you know, I, I just wasn't really ready to consider that. And I actually said no, basically twice um, to the opportunity. 
it was interesting because the literary agent kind of admitted to me, said, man, um, you know, part of our job as literary agents is to establish relationships with the people that run these publishing houses and all the publishers are headquartered in New York. So all the publishing houses, everyone that runs them, they're all Nick fans. So, you know, when, when you talk to them about what they think would sell well and what they would be interested in reading books about, all of them say the Knicks, because the Knicks have been horrible now for a quarter century, essentially. Um, and people are super, super nostalgic for those teams as if they did win a championship, even though they didn't. Um, so they were already saying that in 2018. Then the Jordan documentary came out. And um, I noticed you mentioned the Scotty Pippen book. My editor is the same person that was editing the Scotty Pippen book. Oh, wow. So there was actually a lot of talk for a while about my book coming out before his uh, late last, late, late this year. And then when the Jordan documentary came out and there was all this talk about it, and it obviously did very well ratings wise, they switched the timeline on my book and Scotty's because they wanted to try to capitalize on all the attention that that had gotten. And, but also it made them even more excited about my book project because they were like, if people care that much about the nineties NBA, have we got something for you, you know, for when my book was coming out. So um, I eventually did it just thinking man, I'm, you know, I'm not married. I don't have children. Um, You know, I'm sitting here about to say no to a project that could be, I won't say life-changing, but like certainly impactful. Like if I ever decide I want to do a book at a later point, this is kind of a ready-made subject that I know will be fruitful, that I know a lot of people, at least in one, you know, part of basketball, the basketball world will really care about, particularly, you know, a big market will really care about and really be passionate about. Um, It will just be a lot of work. And am I ready to do that or not? And so I, I did it. I, I still don't know if I was completely in the right mindset to do it with everything that had happened in my personal life and teaching and um, having a job where I I, I was ready and prepared to take a leave of absence from work to work on the book. And then my bosses essentially said, you will let you take it. But also if you'd rather just keep getting paid, um, if you can find the bandwidth to both write your book and report your book out and just keep writing, I don't know, maybe once every week or twice you know, once every two weeks, um, then we'll just let you do that. But it still requires watching a lot of basketball to write the stories that I write for work and to get on a plane to go report. The pandemic happened, which bought me a little bit more time, certainly, uh, from that standpoint, but it was also like the sky was falling the whole time. And, um, you know, I, I've told people, like, I lost a relationship in the process of, uh, of trying to get the book done just because I was spending a lot of time on the book and not as much with my girlfriend at the time. Uh, so, it, it comes with a cost, but I, but that said, I'm happy that I did it just because I don't know how anybody does this with children. I don't know how anyone does this with the family. Um, I don't know how anyone does this with maybe a busier job than I have. Um, but I'm really proud of it. I mean, it's a completely different writing style than the one I use for my own work every day. Um, just letting people talk and kind of letting them have the floor and asking them about the stuff that no one's said before and talking, not just talking. I think the thing I'm most proud of is not just talking to the guys that were on those teams, but everybody that was involved with those teams, secretaries and marketing people and um, hangers on and team dancers that had affairs with players and, you know, people that, you know, were in charge of season tickets and like didn't take it seriously when JFK Jr. said he wanted season tickets. And so stuck him in the third deck of the arena uh, for his season tickets and just like random 
things. There's just so many things. People that like were terrified of Anthony Mason and wouldn't room with him in college. And just like, there's so many random people that have never been quoted before and never been interviewed before that said, Oh, what the hell I'll talk to you. And just made the story so much more colorful than I think what it would be if you just stuck to the the confines of what the thought process is of like that team and those games and those rivalries. I talked to so many people from the other sides of the rivalries, including obviously the Bulls. And I just think it made the story so much more colorful. So I can't wait for people to read it, those that actually are interested enough to read it. Um, but I think it's a good story. Like to me, some people have said like, oh yeah, you're writing about the Knicks because they, you know, they won so much in the nineties because uh, they clearly won so many titles in the nineties. I'm like, okay, well, they did win a lot. They didn't win a title, but they did win a lot. Uh, the same way that you guys, I know, were extremely passionate about those Bulls teams uh, with Derrick Rose and Joakim Noah. Like they did not win the whole thing, but a, an entire city was proud of them uh, for how hard they yep. fought. And there was a universe in which they very easily could have won a championship. And the Knicks had, I would say, a, a period of time that was twice as long as that with guys that meant just as much to those folks as I think those players meant to you all. Maybe not on the level that Rose was just because he was a Chicago kid, but Anthony Mason was from New York, you know? Um, so, and, and I mean, they changed an entire style of basketball. Like the league ran as quickly as they could away from what the Knicks were doing and fundamentally altered the rules of the sport because of the way they were playing and the way they did not want them to play. Um, so, I mean, I thought that that was very worthy of a book and the fact that, you know, you can't fully understand what the nineties were without you know, and what Michael Jordan went through without understanding that team better and what the league wanted to get away from. So I, I think it was a worthy story to tell. You often don't hear about the teams that finish in second, but I thought this was an opportunity to do that. And I think it actually makes it more interesting than just your standard. Here's another book. Here's another documentary <laughs> about the Bulls. Uh, I don't think there are that many stories to be unearthed about those teams that aren't already out there about yeah. those teams. Yeah, it was what the Bulls, Bulls Knicks were. Was it 92 they went to seven games? And then 93... Uh, the Knicks went up 2-0, I think, in that series, and the Bulls came back, and there was obviously the the blocked, uh, the famous call from that was I think Marv Smith again blocked. So like that, obviously, yeah, those series were incredible. I grew up, I was like a little too young to like really appreciate those series, but me too. And I always remembered as I'm like, watching Christmas games, Bulls Knicks when I was young. Like I, even if I don't remember like specifics about all that stuff, like just. Always got excited about Bulls next games on Christmas. Uh, I guess just my last question about this book: Who was your favorite person to talk? To? Did you have one that you were like, or like most interesting? It, it, it won't be a name that resonates with many people, uh, so I don't expect it to. But his name is uh, Bob Salmi. Gave me so many. He was an assistant coach. He was their video coordinator during those years at a time where like video coordinating was still kind of new to the NBA. It was just starting to kind of catch on and become a thing that was widespread, but he gave me so many details. Like there were so many details he'd give me where I'm like, man, you were with the team for that long. Like, don't you feel some obligation to protect these guys a little bit more than you are? Cause he was just giving them up readily telling me about how much he hated Greg Anthony because he couldn't hit the broad side of a barn. And it, at the end of practice with regards to jump shooting and how tired he got having to go track down his loose balls that would just, you know, storm out into the hallway after he'd bricked yet another jumper and how the team coaches would play, um, you know, rock, paper, scissors, essentially to see who was going to rebound for him after practice, but also how big of a jackass Greg Anthony was because he left a loaded gun in the weight room. And, um, you know, and then after he left the loaded gun in the weight room that he, you know, Bob Salmi picks up the gun 
and brings it to Pat Riley's office. But Pat Riley was sitting in a dark office to watch film. And so when Bob Salmi brings the gun up there, for some reason, he holds the gun up like this and like holds it up. So Pat Riley thinks that, you know, Bob Salmi is about to shoot him for whatever reason. So I'm just like, where in between that and, um, you know, going to a strip club on the road, I think in Atlanta and uh, Bob Salmi, I mean, and going there and knowing that Patrick Ewing was likely to be there because Patrick Ewing really liked strip clubs, unbeknownst to a lot of people, and just rolling up, knowing, having a good feeling Patrick Ewing's going to be there, and then having a a waitress take a drink over to Patrick Ewing and saying that it was from the head coach. The drink was from the head coach just to scare the living daylights out of Patrick Ewing for being caught up at the strip club that he's not supposed to be at. And then Patrick Ewing standing up to figure out where his coach was and then saying, oh, it was just Bob. And like, oh, fuck you, Bob. And one of those, just a lot of fun stories. I mean, I guess those are all kind of more lighthearted for how they played out, but there were a lot of more serious ones. I mean, I did full, full chapters on every key guy of that era. Anthony Mason, you know, as I talk about lighthearted stuff, there was a lot of lighthearted stuff, but there's a lot more serious stuff with him and just wanting to try to be appropriate um, and making sure I got to everybody in this book that I possibly could, that would speak to me. Um, And just so grateful that people gave me, I, I went through and logged it. I think I had 660 hours of interviews by the time I was done with it. I talked to more than 200 people for the book um, and just could not be more grateful for people that in some cases spent three days with the Knicks in training camp before getting cut. And some of them had the most eye-opening stories that you just wouldn't believe because, you know, from the way I saw it, Patrick Ewing was there the longest and was the biggest name and everything. But Patrick Ewing also had the most to remember because he was there for all of it. So what about the people that only spent 10, 12 hours with those guys? They're going to remember everything. And literally, even the first major anecdote I get in my book is essentially a day one brawl of Pat Riley's first day with the Knicks practice between Xavier McDaniel and Anthony Mason. And the story has been related a number of times. Yeah, (laughs) 10, 15 minutes into their first practice, they have a brawl. And the story has been told before that they had a fight, but like I ended up tracking down a guy that was with them for one year and one year only with that roster. And, you know, I was trying to get an understanding of why that fight started. And he was like, Oh, the fight started because of me. I'm like, wait, what? And he walks me through it and I'm like, wow. You know? And so it was something where literally I talked to 215 people and literally only one person had that detail or shared that detail with me. And it's like, again, someone was with them for a year, but, you know, and just that one year, a guy that probably Knicks fans don't even remember, his name was Patrick Eddy, but it's like, that is such an invaluable detail to get for a book. And, um, you know, again, essentially the one I led with the whole book and pinned the whole book on what would, you know, one moment that would essentially kind of encapsulate what would be 10 years for that team. And um, so it was just so important to talk to guys that were only there briefly but had those relationships, like you can't take for granted what you think people will know. And I think that was the biggest lesson I learned in reporting this out and talking to that many people is that sometimes those people that you had no expectation that they would know anything. And a lot of times those people knew closer to everything than nothing. And uh, so I'm hopeful that people enjoy it. I think there's a lot there for even people that are just fans of the other teams that the Knicks barred with, with, between the Bulls, the Pacers, uh, the Heat. I felt like I spent a lot of time 
interviewing people from those teams and with those teams just to try to understand what the other side of the rivalry was like. And I tried to put, you know, new information that really hasn't been out there on each of those teams as well from what I got in that reporting. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Uh, Definitely looking forward to that. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Let all our listeners know again, uh, title of your book, where they could find your work on Twitter, all that good stuff. Sure. Uh, Well, again, my name is Chris Herring from Sports Illustrated. Um, The name of the book is Blood in the Garden, the flagrant history of the 1990s New York Knicks. Uh, It is available for pre-order. It'll be out January 18th, uh, but it's available for pre-order now. If you follow me on Twitter or see me on Twitter, um, my uh, handle is herring underscore NBA on Twitter. And, you know, I had someone build a Jade Hoy build a book trailer for me that um, to me, I, I have no, aside from this book and it doing well, have no interest necessarily in just the Knicks as a team, I'm not a fan or anything, but had him build a trailer just to try to, you know, I, I have a lot of friends in my life that are not diehard basketball fans that are not NBA fans. I wanted him to build a trailer that would kind of be more general interest to kind of sum up what that era was like. And it's basically just three and a half minutes of the Knicks beating the crap out of people <laughs> and intimidating people set to music that, you know, it just, it, it got my pulse racing about something that, you know, I think a more general NBA fan could see how different the game was back then through that video. Um, so I just thought it was awesome. Um, my book publisher was like, we're not going to do a video uh, or not one like that. We don't have the capability to do that. I was like, fine, I'll pay for this myself. And, um, you know, and paid for someone to build that video myself. And I think it was worth every penny. So take a look at that. But um, I'm again, I'm hopeful that people enjoy the book um, and that they like it or that they learn something, you know, that I, I think that it was just a very different time. I was too young. I was four when they hired Pat yep. Riley. Yeah. Um, but I'm hopeful that people get a chance to understand what the league was like at the time because it was worlds different from what it is now. And the league was trying desperately to move away from what it was then so that we could get to what we have now. So I'm hopeful that people enjoy it. Awesome. Thank you again so much. This was great. Great talking to Bulls, Knicks, all this fun stuff. Again, we got Bulls, Knicks coming up on Thursday. I think it's at 6.30 Chicago time. I believe it's an NBA TV game. Uh, not doing the TNT stuff until the football season is over. Super annoying. Wow. Want to get the Bulls wow. on. Some, need some more national TV for the Bulls. Even though this would be a road game, it wouldn't quite be TNT Bulls, but need some more Bulls on national TV, damn it. So we got like fake NBA uh, national TV with NBA TV this weekend on thir- or on Thursday, this weekend on Saturday, it's the going to Brooklyn then. So that's going to be uh, the Bulls beat Brooklyn earlier this season on the road. Uh, obviously be a tough game whenever you face Katie and James Harden, even though James Harden has been super weird this year. So it'll be a fun weekend of Bulls or fun week of Bulls basketball coming up here. Uh, we'll not totally sure when we'll be back. Maybe after that Nets game, we'll talk. I know we got the Nuggets on Monday too. So uh, we'll wrap it up here, uh, here at Cash Considerations, a Chicago Bulls podcast. As always, a shout out to the Blue Wire Network. Uh, check out all the other great pods all across the Blue Wire Network. We get in the middle of the NBA season, tons of great content coming out from Blue Wire with NBA and other sports as well. For us here at Cash Considerations, please rate and review us. Give us those five-star ratings on Apple Podcasts. Leave us reviews. Let us know how we can do better. You can find us on Twitter. Me, Jason, at uh, Bulls underscore J. Ricky is at SBN underscore Ricky. So thanks again for Chris Herring joining us. We'll talk to you guys next time. Uh, fun week coming up with the Bulls. Take it easy, guys. This is last year's Bulls. It's not last year's Bulls.
Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.